So this morning's reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jew, the Jews have entrusted with the, have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings, our God's, it brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned, condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. All right, friends, let me organise myself here. We've got a long weekend coming up next weekend, don't we? The first King's birthday weekend in a long time. Aussies love a long weekend because it reminds us of our freedom, freedom from work for another day to do the things that we want to do. Aussies love freedom, freedom of choice. Just think about how many takeaway options we have. We had a night to kill the other night and when Peter and I have a night to kill, we don't go out because we have small, four small children. So uh, we bring the restaurant to us my goodness, if you pull up menu log or Uber Eats, the choices are endless. Like, I mean, just the, the freedom of choice that we have. Do we want to eat from India or do we want to eat from Thailand or do we want to go something more obscure and we can, we can try some South American delights? We have so much freedom of choice. Actually, it's more than just takeaway, isn't it? It's a whole reflection of the things that Aussies hold dear as social values. We love freedom of expression. 
And you can see that kind of playing out in all kinds of different ways, but perhaps election day is one way that comes to mind that the rest of the world might look on with a great envy, a freedom of expression to say all kinds of things in placards and posters and flyers and ads and on the TV and in your face at times, but we're free to do it. It's a freedom that many have fought for and many others still fight for today. Aussies love our freedom, and and rightly so. It is a great blessing and something that we should never take for granted. And yet, did you notice, did it stand out to you in the same way that it did to me as I was reading through this passage, that we're told that Australians are not actually free? We live in a world, in a nation, in a city that are not free. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 sums up Paul's conclusion so far. All alike are under the power of sin. I'm not free. I'm under the power of sin. It's a startling statement and one that we really need to do business with. So let's dive in. Uh, firstly, briefly, having spent all of chapter 2 addressing the Christians in Rome, in particular who came from a Jewish background, and if you kind of you read, hear those words as, as Colin read them for us and they felt a little jarring and what, I'm picking up on an idea that I haven't heard here. Pick up the last couple of weeks of sermons that we've unpacked, how much Paul had to say to those Christians from Jewish backgrounds. Well, Paul sums up two false conclusions that someone might be tempted to make in light of that before clarifying the one right conclusion to reach, which gives us plenty of food for thought on the fight for freedom. So first... Those two false conclusions that we might reach on the basis of what we've been learning over the last few weeks. In verses 1 through 4, Paul wrestles with this potential conclusion that some might say, well, the unfaithfulness of the Jews, that shows that God has been unfaithful. See, having wrestled with the particular privileges and the responsibilities of the Jewish people as the recipients of God's promises, the false conclusion to reach would be that yeah, their failure to understand and obey, that's God's fault. He's let the team down by, by not making sure they stayed faithful. Verse 3, the question's there. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. However unfaithful they had been, it's still on them. God remains faithful. He is just in his judgment. It might seem outrageous to say that it's one versus everyone. But that's what it is. God versus all of humanity. God is true, faithful, trustworthy. Humanity is the problem. Well, second false conclusion. Gosh, if surely God is unjust in bringing his judgment on us, if we're actually giving him another opportunity to show forgiveness. It's really just the next step to say, well, if God is, God is shown to be glorious because he is so forgiving, well, then surely our sins giving him the opportunity to make him look good by forgiving us more. Verse 6, not at all. God is just. So we can't simply overlook evil. We can't just fudge the results. can't sort of pretend it hasn't happened. Actually, that would be a universe of chaos and horror beyond our imagining. No, God's glory is evident because his grace, his justice was so costly. Now, to put both of these conclusions in simple terms... You might think, gosh, does anyone, actually, does anyone actually ask these things? And I can assure you that yes, because I've wondered them myself and I've had long discussions with uni mates in years gone by about both of them. 
Paul says, actually, both of these are false conclusions. And we, we kind of scramble to jump at conclusions like this. Oh, it's not really my fault. God's let the team down. Actually, if God was really gracious, then he'd just keep forgiving. So my sin, that's just an opportunity for him to look good. Now, Paul's point is, we scramble for such conclusions because we're uncomfortable with the one right conclusion. As people who love our freedom, this is such a startling statement. We are all under the power of sin. In your summary question that Paul says, do we, the Jews, he's talking about as a fellow Jew, do we have any advantage? No, not at all. As we've seen, the Jews had the real privileges as the recipients of God's promises, but it was no advantage to them in their standing before him. Paul is summing up everything that he said from chapter 1, verse 18, that we've looked at over this last month. All alike, verse 9, we are under the power of sin. Just think back over some of the things that we have thought through in this last month. Why don't we glorify and thank God as he deserves? Because we're under the power of sin. Why do we worship created things instead of God the creator? Because we're under the power of sin. Why do we distort and abuse our relationships with each other? Because we're under the power of sin. Why do we cling to all of the outward signs that we want to show of just how good we are in our good enoughness? Because we're under the power of sin. And Paul says in verse 10, as it is written, that is, there's nothing new here. He's taking us to the Old Testament to show that none of us are truly free. As it is written, and this is the power of sin that impacts us. Sin, it impacts the state of our relationships with God. There is no one who is righteous, which is to say there's, there's no one in right relationship with God. It's more than just doing good stuff. We've busted our relationship with God, and so we're without excuse. Sin it impacts our minds, the state of our minds. There's no one who understands even our ability to make sense of this world and our place in it. It's been impacted. And thirdly, sin impacts the desires of our hearts. No one seeks God. Now, that's a bold claim. And surely as we read through this, it's worthy, worthy of sort of a side note. What about your experience of finding God, if you have? And what about your friends who are seeking for him? Well, actually, Paul is simply quoting from Psalm 14, as we've read here. And he's affirming what that psalm says, that we're all under the power of sin. And so none of us initiate the search for God. Anyone who seeks God has first been sought by him. Anyone who finds God has first been drawn by him. And Paul rolls on, and we will too, the fourth impact of sin, it's on the direction of our lives. All have turned away, we read in verse 12. These challenging words, they've become worthless. Now that doesn't mean worthless, as in without any value at all, but the sense of unprofitable, no worthwhile end. The thought's clarified in the second half of the verse. There's no one who does good. No one who truly does other person-centred goodness. Under the, whole, under the power of sin, under the whole direction of our life is, is impacted as we walk away from a God-centred goodness towards self-centredness. 
And again, we scratch our heads. Paul's just rolling this on, piling this on. I don't know how you're feeling, but we're thinking, surely, surely this is, this is just a bit too bold. What about our friends who do good? Surely it's just not true to claim that no one does good. Well, as we've wrestled with in the last couple of weeks and as the Bible makes clear again and again, there is more than just the surface of things to consider. We're all under the power of sin, God is teaching us. So even our good is polluted by our self-centeredness. You know, the good deeds to impress others, to, to put on the CV that I served here and I went there and I gave that. Maybe good deeds to placate our conscience. Actually, I'm doing all right. Think about those people I helped. Or the good deeds to win God's favour, as we wrestled with last week. To help us really wrestle with this, I just want to share a story that is actually a pretty old story in itself, from Charles Spurgeon. A couple of hundred years ago, Spurgeon was a great preacher in England. He had a way with images and stories that capture our mind. Because I think as we roll through this, as Paul piles this on layer upon layer, I think we look at a world that looks pretty free. We know a bunch of people that seem pretty good. And we struggle, to, we struggle to picture what Paul is talking about here. Let me share a story, a kind of fairy tale for us. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his prince. And when he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, the prince said to him, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It's yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. Well, meanwhile, a nobleman heard of this incident and thought, Huh, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot... What would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed, a glorious horse, as a gift to his prince. But the prince knew his heart and said, You expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener? I will not. You are different. The gardener gave me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. You know, Spurgeon wrote this a couple of hundred years ago, and yet I think he knows her heart so well. But so often the good deeds that are done for the others, well, actually, who are they really gifts to? That the nobleman would give the horse to his prince, not because he wants his prince to have a fine horse, but he hopes that he gets the fine estate. And did you notice the way that Paul has chosen a whole bunch of quotes that highlight just how sin impacts every part of us? He invites us to, to think of ourselves from top to bottom. Verses 13 and 14, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths... It's confronting words because in the way that we communicate, we bring death and deceit and poison, cursing and bitterness, he says. 
verse 15 to 18. It's our feet. It's our feet that are swift to shed blood. In the way that we walk, the decisions that we make leading to ruin and misery and harm, he says. In verse 18, it's our eyes. The way that we view the world, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a great summary statement, actually. There is no fear of God, no reverence, no willingness to glorify and thank him as he is due, to use the words that we read right back in chapter 1. You see, to have no fear of God before our eyes is to be viewing the world through the lens of ourselves, to see things only from our position at the centre of the universe rather than seeing the universe with God at the centre. You see, I think... What Paul is highlighting for us is that we need a Copernican revolution. If you know your science, you know of Copernicus, who amongst others in his day was among the first to realise that actually the earth isn't the centre of the universe, with a little sun that floats around us to shed light upon us, who realised that we actually live on a, not a big planet, with a small sun rolling around us but a small planet that orbits a very big sun. And friends, this is the power of sin over us. That we would be so controlled by our sin that we see ourselves at the centre and God, if he's in the picture at all, he's off to the side, there to be called upon when I need his help. Like a servant or the Uber driver who delivered the takeaway for Peter and I the other night when we were having a night at home. I think that's how we think of God. Orbiting us, serving our needs. But we will need to acknowledge that in fact, our very small earth revolves around a very big sun. And by the way, that picture is nowhere near scale. Uh, we're much smaller than that. And even further from this massive sun. But that's life under the power of sin that there would be no fear of God in our eyes, that everything we look at is tainted by the perspective that puts us at the centre and God rolling around us for our benefit, not giving him the reverence that he's due. It might sound enticing, it might look appealing. But Paul's point and the position that we're dwelling in this month is that it's disastrous. Now, if you like to understand some of the categories that we're thinking in, what we're talking about here, reading about here, is the doctrine of total depravity. This can be confusing because some people think that means that Christians think, you know, everyone is totally evil. Which is not what the Bible teaches us. That we're not as evil as we possibly could be. But it does teach us that sin impacts every aspect of us. So we will still see glimpses of goodness in people, expressions of kindness, for example. These are reflections of God's good creation in us. However, the Bible teaches us here, as it does throughout, that there is no aspect of our nature that is not stained by sin. Or as Paul puts it for us here, that is not under the power of sin. Our thinking and our perceiving, our relationships... Our ability to twist each other into the objects of our satisfaction. Even our connection with this planet Earth and our ability to, to dominate and distort it. Our relationship with ourselves. 
Our bodies and minds are so confused that we're just not sure which way is up. These are just part of the experience of living in a world and as a person under the power of sin. That its impact is all-encompassing. The whole of us is under the power of sin, is the confronting truth that God has for us. We have no part of us that's outside of its influence. It's not like I have a, a hand clinging on that I can pull myself out with. So to be under the power of sin is to be in need of a saviour. Someone from outside of us to come and to rescue us. And Paul's point here is that that is regardless of whether we've had a religious background, the Jews in that day, or not. Our consciences make it clear enough to the, that, this is, that this is our state. As verse 20 summed up starkly, even God's law isn't enough to save us because it simply shows us how flawed that we are. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. So sin impacts all of us. There's no part of us that is not under the power of sin and it impacts all of us. We are all alike under the power of sin. It's the reality of us all even when we look like we're doing perfectly fine. That's the heavy word that Paul has for us, that God has for us from Romans 3. But as you hear this, maybe you're not convinced by that. You're reading this, hearing this, and you're not convinced that this is a description of you or the people that you know and love. I think maybe we feel like we can see it a bit easier in the prisoner. Their sin is more obvious, <laughs> their captivity more tangible, all of the horrible things that they've done that deserve to be locked away for. I think that's one of the great opportunities of the Kairos ministry. There's a bunch of guys that don't actually need to be convinced that they've sinned. <laughs> they know it all too well. But we need to hear what God is teaching us, even if we struggle to see it, that this is the reality for the teacher and the doctor, the plumber, the waiter, this is the reality for your mum or your brother, for your mate at work, for the lovely ladies in your mum's group. They might look like they're living in freedom. It might look like they're doing all kinds of good in all kinds of ways. But Romans is challenging us to see the world with the fear of God in our eyes. The kind of reverence that helps us to see that not everything is as it seems. That there is no one righteous, not even one. Now I get that that is a pretty bleak view of humanity, right? But it seems to me that it's actually a very compelling view of human nature. To my mind, it is the explanation that makes the most sense of why we are the way that we are, that best fits with what we see in the world around us. It seems to me that this is the explanation of human nature that I think it just makes the most sense of homelessness in Victoria Park. It's the explanation that makes the most sense of a war in Ukraine. It's the explanation of human nature that makes the most sense of Pacific islands gradually flooding under rising seawaters. But far more personally, I think it's the explanation of my human nature. 
that I think makes best sense of what I know in my heart and my mind. I wonder how it sits with you. Because it's a view of our nature that's so important for us to get our heads around. To use a medical kind of metaphor, we need to get the right diagnosis if we want to be able to get the right treatment. And I think that's why Paul has spent nearly three chapters helping us understand it. That's actually why we've spent four weeks wrestling with it, uncomfortable as that has been. That in ourselves, there is no one righteous. None of us. Now this is the diagnosis that not only shows how desperately we need a cure, but it's actually also a, a wonderful indication of what that cure looks like. Or to shift the metaphor, of what the fight for freedom looks like. Because as bleak as this picture of our human nature is, it is a wonderful, or even... It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful mirror, rather, of who Jesus is. Perhaps actually to put that better even, it's, it's a wonderful image in the negative of who Jesus is. Do any of you remember old school film negatives? I don't know if you're under, how, how old do you need to be? Braden, you've probably never even heard about this. This is, this is what we had before we had digital cameras and then I realised, no, this is what we had before we had phone, cameras on our phone. Who, who even knows what a digital camera is, right? when a film recorded the image in the negative and it looks pretty ugly. But it's a thing of beauty when it's, when it's shown in all its true colour. And our humanity is pretty ugly when it's laid bare in the way that we've read about. But at every point, Jesus is the opposite of what is described here. There is no one righteous, but he is righteous in perfect relationship with God, his Father. There's no one who understands, but he has perfect understanding because his mind is not clouded by the sinful pursuit of self and a, and a willful suppression of the truth of God. Rather than seeking self-gain, he aligned his life with God and his purposes, even when it cost him everything at the cross. All have turned away, we read in Romans, but at every point Jesus did the opposite of turning away from God. He turned to him. In his great power as the Lord of the universe, even then he didn't assert his independence from God, but submitted to God his Father. There is no one who does good, and yet in Jesus we have the very epitome of doing good. The good that is truly other person-centred. And it's true of every part of him. From his mouth came life and truth and wisdom. Instead of curse and bitterness, he spoke with love and he spoke with truth. Instead of feet that were swift to shed blood, his hands and his feet, they were channels of peace that reached out to the helpless and the hopeless and ultimately stretched out to take the nails that would bring his death. And though he chose the way of ruin and misery, as Paul charges us with in Romans... For him it was his own ruin on the cross for the sake of restoration and joy for anyone who would kneel before him. And his eyes, in every way, at every time, for all of time, 
Jesus lives with the fear of God in his eyes, a loving, joyful reverence for his Father, who he delights to glorify for all eternity. In every way, Jesus is the positive of our negative. He is the righteousness that we are not. And so, friends, as we read a really confronting passage like this that we have this morning, this is why we will relentlessly go on and on and on and on and on about the need to introduce people to Jesus. This is not a guilt trip. It's not a project list. It's love. Because in a, in a nation that loves our freedom, we have found freedom if we know Jesus. And we want to share it with those who are yet to taste its sweetness. To shift the metaphor again, I recently saw the Will Smith film Emancipation based on the true story of Peter, a runaway slave in Louisiana in the 1860s, right at the time when Abraham Lincoln and his Unionist army were not only gradually, incrementally winning victory, but they were freeing slaves. It's the moving account of the lengths that someone like Peter would go to when they've known the horror of slavery, that they might obtain their freedom. But what is most compelling as I watch this, this movie is not just Peter's own thirst for his freedom and everything that he would pursue to obtain it, but that actually when he finally reaches freedom with Abraham Lincoln's Unionist army, he doesn't stay and rest in the joy of his freedom. Instead, he joins the army. And he turns right around to fight for the freedom of his family and fellow slaves. And friends, that is why we are constantly going on and on and unashamedly on and on about the need for people to hear about Jesus. Because we all need a saviour and God has sent him. In fact, that's why we're hitting pause in Romans from this week. If you know Romans, you know that the next verse is just a beacon of light. You're like, why have you stopped at chapter 3, verse 20? Because Exodus is all about preparing us for the great Saviour who was to come and has now come. It's about a people under slavery sent a very unimpressive Saviour to bring them to God as his people restored. It's a great story that points us to our need for a saviour. Because in the last few weeks, we've all felt, I think, the weight of this truth. That all alike are under the power of sin. That there is no one righteous. That this is the reality for us all. That despite our love of freedom, our pursuit of freedom, our claim to freedom, we are all under the power of sin. But if we know Jesus, we know the one. The, the one who can save all who are under the power of sin. The one who is righteousness himself. The one who is the truth. The one who gives the truth. The one who sets free those who are under the power of sin. And so in love, we want to join the team. We want to join the army and fight for freedom too. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father,
It's been a bittersweet month that you've had us spend in these early chapters of Romans because it's been heavy going (laughs) to have the curtain drawn back on our own hearts, our own souls, our own minds and the nature of this world. And yet it is sweet because we know it is truth and it's a truth that we need to hear. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to rest in this truth as you design it to be, not a prompt for hopelessness, but a longing for your rescue. Father, we thank you that you have shown us the one who is righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the positive of our every negative, in whom we have the hope of true freedom, both now and for eternity. Father, if we haven't tasted that freedom yet, we pray that you would give us the opportunity to to understand it and by your spirit bring us that life and that freedom and that truth and that joy that is found in Jesus. Help us have the courage to pick up a conversation over a coffee with a friend that we've come with and to come to meet Jesus who is the one. And Lord, if you have been so kind as to initiate that seeking and that searching and that finding in us, Father, would you please use us to share that love and that grace and that truth with this world that so desperately needs to know Jesus? Because we know this is love. And we pray you'd grow us in it. Amen.